Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by Coifin. Coifin displays financial information simply and elegantly. Coifin's one of the fastest growing platforms for financial data and analytics to research stocks and understand market trends. I discovered them thanks to their very passionate users, many of which are my friends. Imagine a Bloomberg light with tons of high quality fundamental data, a powerful graph engine that can show it all clearly, and a user interface that doesn't look like it was built in the 1990s. If you're an individual investor, research analyst, portfolio manager, or financial advisor, do yourself a favor and check them out. You won't regret it. Sign up for free at koifin.com. That's K-O-Y-F-I-N.com. This episode's a fun one. Logan Motoshami is a one-of-a-kind individual. He really brings the flair in his personality in this one. Known by some as the crusher of bears, he's a data-driven analyst that called 2020 almost perfectly. You'll hear moments in the conversation where it may sound like I agree with him and uh, was as confident as he was in April of 2020. I assure you that is hindsight bias and conversational agreement. I was scurred like the rest of you, or at least like many of you. Logan, however, documented his calls in real time, was right for the right reasons, and he came on here to share how he sees the world. This conversation was uh, super fun for me. I'm thankful he said yes to coming on the show, and I think that it's going to be pretty interesting to uh, a lot of you. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Thrilled to be joined by Logan, also known as Crusher of Bears. How you doing today, Logan? I'm doing excellent. Thank you for asking. Good. I appreciate you being here, man. Thank you. I, I've become a real fan of yours. I was tipped off. At Nafil Sanala is the one that told me that I should be following you. Yes. He's and been then I work for some time, yeah. Yeah, and then I started watching your fleets, which they killed, which is very unfortunate. Fleets, you know, you know, fleets was great because I was doing that for many years on Instagram stories. So when fleets came out, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to do them here and then transfer the actually uh, video to Instagram. So it was really easy for me, but nobody did fleets on Twitter. Yeah. So I just, I know some people are shy, some people contractually, I don't think they can do it, but fleets was fun. I used to love it. So for those that aren't on Twitter and don't follow Logan, Logan go, used to go through before Twitter killed fleets. It was like, what, like six or seven charts, right? And you'd go yeah, through the every, economic a, a, data. Everything, all economic data each day wasn't just primarily housing and just kind of go over it and give like a historical context and what does it mean each day. So that's, I've been doing that for years and fleets was the first time Twitter allowed me to, to do it there. And and I think that the Twitter crowd enjoys it more than the Instagram crowd because- huh. No matter what we all think of each other on Twitter, we're still part of the kind of the financial family. So it, it means a little bit more to them where Instagram, there could be just people there that, you know, can't even spell economics. So it's just. Yeah, it's, it's your economic takes and someone's beautiful buttocks and yeah, the buttocks yeah. seems to win. Yeah. Instagram is different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not exactly a, a battle of ideas necessarily. Yeah. So for those that don't know you, I guess, you know, the reason that here's the hook you pulled off one of the greatest trades in history and people can figure out how by listening. But more importantly, uh, I really like how data driven you are 
and how you're not one to get caught up in narratives. So I, if you wouldn't mind kind of going through your background a little bit, and then we can kind of get into to the story and how you see things. So I started trading stocks in 1996, and then I also got into the mortgage business as well. Our families had our, our own mortgage company here in Southern California since 1987. In general, my family has been in banking since the late 1950s. So come around to 2010, my whole writing thing actually started because of Jason Resnick on Benzinga. Huh. He saw me debating Michelle Cabrera on CNBC on some Facebook post, and he actually asked me, he's like, do you want to be our political economic writer? And I go, oh, no, I, that's not my thing. But you know what? <laughs> I, I really could talk about real estate. I think I could give a different take on it. One thing led to another. I, I created my own financial blog. And then throughout time, everything kind of developed into more of becoming an analyst. I and mean, I think around 2015, I decided to, you know what, let's just not make this about housing. Let's talk about the entire economic sphere and really focus on economic and business cycles. I think that that's where I saw a lot of the misinformation and give people the belief that economic models work in this day and age with ideological takes and stock trader takes and political takes, you could lose perspective so it was really, really data-driven, and, and it also happened in the longest economic and job expansion ever recorded in history. So what I wanted to do is just, I mean, primarily a lot of people know me for housing, but really to focus on economic cycles and things that matter to give a, just a different view for people if they like that stuff. And I always say, like, there's two things I always say. Economics done right is terribly boring. I'm not the most exciting person, but <laughs> I don't know, really, man. I think you make it exciting. <laughs> I, I try. And you really want to be the detective, not the troll, right? And then yeah. once you learn, then you start to realize that a lot of takes on the internet or on TV might not be correct. They're more driven for other purposes. And that's really the goal of it all. And having the longest economic and job expansion in history and always telling people there's no recessionary data, there's no recessionary data, even going up to... February of 2020, ISM manufacturing was up, retail sales were up, housing authentically broke out in February 2020. We got the data in March and we're dealing with other things. But but it, it felt like I did it the right way. And then obviously when COVID happened, it offered the probably the once in a lifetime chance for everybody to kind of show their real economic game here. But for me, it was always about showing a recovery model and going with that until the recovery. And of course, you know, everybody's stuck in 2008 mode and every single decline and any data lines, a recession and everything. But this way, I thought, you know what, this is it. This is my once in a lifetime chance to do it, do it right. And you better hit it out of the ballpark. And I think that's what a lot of people know me more now, you know, for the America's Back Recovery Model on April 7th, the you know, housing isn't going to crash, but explaining why this, is, this isn't the case. Yeah, I, I think what's amazing is you are the, the person that, did it right, waited for the pitch, and then swung hard when the pitch came. And a lot of people don't have the guts to swing hard when the pitch comes. Yeah, in April, you know, March and April, there was a lot of, you know, when you're an economic expansion bull like I was for you, you get a target on your head. And that's that's part of the, and when you're in this business, that's fair. That's what you take. But I really, really, really believed you know, that we were going to recover in 2020, for like everything. But for me, it's to show why. And a lot of people are like, you're crazy. You're just these 
permables, you don't believe in models, even though I do have a recession model and check things off from time to time. But I thought this is it. This is going to work, but we have to show people data lines to follow. And I think one of the more important things was to give people dates. We actually, in the recovery model, we gave people dates to work off of, to checkpoint where the progress is coming. And then for me personally, the, the last thing for 2020 is getting that 10-year yield basically toward 1%. And by that time, if anybody was a bearish person, because we had a lot of WLs, Ks, all this talk, we were gone. We were start, April was the bottom and we just taken off from there. And now historically, you know, because this is a, hopefully this is a once in a lifetime event, people can go back in history 100 years from now and they go, okay, well, these people were all bearish all the way until December of 2020. But, you know, the people that called it right, Neil Dutta did it, Connor Shaw did it. And, and explaining why this was the case was more important than the final result for me. Yeah. The thing that, in you know, I, I pieced it back together. I wish that I was following you then. I would have made a lot more money, but I, I did fine. So whatever. But why was the world stopping not a reason to sort of like, how did that not break your models? Like So COVID happened right in a period of time that I've been talking about for a very long time, years 2020 to 2024. With the Great Recession, you had a credit bubble, prime age labor force that peaked in 2007 and declined, something that didn't really happen from 1979 to 2007. And I'm a demographics guy. So prime age labor force growing, employment to population, those are really big things. So I've always said that housing is a year's 2020 to 2024 story. And I've always said America's muscle is it's actually demographics. We have a lot of replacement workers and consumers that's different than other countries. So when COVID happened, it happened right in 2020. And I think what a lot of people missed, especially a lot of stock traders, is that they saw the inverted yield curve and then they naturally go off of other times and think, okay, well, he, the recession is here and in 2008 and it's going to be a while. What happened was economic data was getting better toward the end of 2019. And then in 2020, the first two months were really good. Hmm. In fact, when I think about this entire period, February 2020 housing data was the most prolific month in the last 12 years, housing authentically broke out big time everywhere. Starts, existing home sales, uh, new home sales, median prices were up 8% already. That was the bad part of it. But that just doesn't go away because of a virus causing a pause, right? Mm. There's no, there's the, 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 I've always said the financial balance sheet of American households have never looked better. And, and it's the same line I use years and years. It's, Fixed low debt cost versus rising wages. So what happened is consumer debt is primarily mortgage debt. Mortgage debt really didn't have any expansion. If inflation adjusted, it's actually negative still from the housing bubble years. That's why the 2002 to 2005 period was so unique. So they have fixed low debt costs, rising wages. Wait, I'm sorry, just to just to to close that circle. Why was the 2002 to 2005 period so unique? Because debt adjusted to inflation took off, purchase application data took okay. off, home sales took off. Debt itself, not only did it take off, the, the debt structures, and that's another part of my work over the years, debt structures were very unhealthy, right? And I think that's the internal work of looking at credit profiles and debt profiles. You had a lot of loans that were, were created for not long-term fixed low debt cost okay. backdrops. So you, you went from an extremely unhealthy four-year period to now, boy, from you know 2012 to 2020, you, you had this very long economic expansion. 
you had fixed load debt costs. And every time everybody refinanced, their debt payments went lower, their, uh, their wages kept on going higher. You couldn't get two more opposite periods in probably economic history going back hundreds of years than what you saw from 2002 to 2011 in housing and 2012 to 2020. So the backdrop was there. And you always have to assume majority of people are always working. Yeah. Right. Even even here, majority of the people. So for housing, you know, when, when COVID happened, you had a lot of people that were in the renter financial profile, a lot of service sector jobs being lost. But if you take what happened in Italy and in China, the first key date was May 18th. By May 18th, things will stabilize. The country just went into a free fall. It froze. Basically, everybody just stopped. But on April 7th, there are two things I needed to see to write the recovery model was the 10-year yield was above uh, 62 basis points. Before COVID hit, I thought recessionary yields and yield ranges are really crucial in my work. Negative 21 basis points on the 10-year and 62 basis points. If the 10-year yield is ranging in that, we're still in a recession, right? Huh. That's recessionary day. April 7th, there was 73 basis points. The St. Louis Financial Stress Index, which is one of the most hated, but one of the most critical and efficient data lines we have was already recovering and you got to go with it, right? Why is because it so hated if it's so efficient? Because it's it's the Fed created it and it's, wow. all the Fed haters hate it and that they just troll the internet with it. <laughs> and it really, if you just followed out, you would have been okay. But so the that index was recovering, bond yields were up, we're good to go. Hmm. But getting people to believe this was not going to be easy. So we set data lines to follow, to track week after week, month after month. And then what happened is that the jobs started coming back. Purchase application data had a kind of a waterfall dive, but then made the sharpest V-shaped recovery. And we were on our way. And still yeah. people were frozen, right? Because they're stuck in 2008 mode. And when you're stuck in 2008 mode, you don't think the recovery is going to be fast, right? So when I wrote down, hey, listen, Q3 and Q4 are going to be fine, right? You know, by September 1st, we're really going to be in a good spot. I think by August 31st, the market's already got to all-time highs then. So that is going to be difficult. So you give people data lines to follow and track, and then you see that sharp recovery back because the most important thing, we weren't going in recession in 2020. There was a lot of people that thought we were because of the inverted yield curve, but the data lines were positive. You just have to be able to read them. I mean, literally, uh, ISM, PMI, retail sales, housing, job openings were still high. Job growth itself was actually much better than I thought the first two months. You just go with that. And then, of course, the disaster relief plug the holes, you know, for people that weren't getting their income and you're off and going. And because the contraction was so deep, the recovery was so sharp, April 20, that was it. It was over. And now we're into 2021, which is a much different situation. But that was the American recovery model. And it worked time after time, month after month, tracking it, showing people. And then again, the last thing I needed to see in 2020 was the 10-year yield get up to about 1%. But overall, the main thing of the recovery model is that the 10-year yield had to get into a range between 1.33 to 1.60. Back in April 7th, I said, that's the final goal. That won't happen in 2020. But in 2021, that'll be the case. And every time the 10-year yield started going up, I pushed the American flag, flexing the muscle. And then once we got at 160, we're good to go. Expansion is on. Different discussion from now on until the next recession. But at 160, don't you just get the, well, rates are going up, so everything's going to collapse? Isn't that the next uh, you know, argument it, that's it, bound to come? 
it's a perspective of what people think the bond market means. You know, so in the previous expansion, when I started incorporating it in my yearly forecast, I've said the same thing every year. We're just going to be in a range between 160 and 3%. You know, sometimes we broke underneath 160 and people go, okay, that's a recession. That happened a few times. It wasn't the case. Uh, Obviously, in 2018, we got to about three and a quarter. Trying to convince people in 2018 that bond yields were going to go down and that we could possibly have a one handle was hard. But, you know, I stuck to that. And then, you know, growth slowed down, manufacturing data, everything slowed down. We got the 10 year and we basically, for the most part, stayed in that range. So I understand the bond market might mean something different and it should mean something different to anybody, everybody else. But it worked right. That 133 to 160 range was connected. For 2021, I can't go above 1.94%. So really, unless I see the 10-year yield get above 1.94%, which is a key level for me for some time now, or 62 basis points, it's the bond market really isn't saying too much. It's just the kind of the movement out here. The economic expansion is early. The bears whiffed in the biggest fashion ever in history. And most of them are long stocks still, so they all made money. Don't let them trick you that they're not long. And we're going into the expansion and now the conversation takes to another level and where we talk about what to look for in the expansion. Don't kind of freak out when this happens or don't get overly bullish when this happens. We kind of take it as we uh, go. And remember, every day, one day at a time, one economic report at a time, believe in economic models. They are historically, they work. They're not exciting. But if you just track them, it gives you a, a pathway. When you say we, just so people know, they can find you at Housing Wire, correct? Yeah, you know what? My blog, loganemotoshami.com, and I, I've stopped writing about housing there. I do give economic updates once a month, but for Housing Wire, a lot of my work, especially during COVID, was there, almost in a data analytical work. So a lot of the work is there, and, and I'm still writing there for the foreseeable future. Yes. And why is, you said 1.94, right? Is yeah. the level that, why is that a, a level in your mind that you're watching? So this was this was critical for me because oddly enough, at the end of 2017, my forecast for 2018 was for yields to invert. Hmm. I thought we'd get an inverted yield curve, but when it happens, it'll also be the longest time between the inverted yield curve and the recession. There was a lot of things that were working in the previous expansion that were unique. And and even though some people might not agree that the you know only the two fives inverted or, or or something to that nature i believe we inverted the yield curve in 2018 i even checked it off my recession model but when we got the inverted yield curve in 2019 i said do not do not believe in the higher great growth story until the 10-year yield can close above 1.94 percent and get follow-through selling i even made it a part of my 2020 forecast that this hasn't happened yet so don't go into it until this occurs, right? The bond market is pretty good on this stuff. So it never did. It actually closed right at 1.94% and, and didn't break through. So this is the reason why I, for now, I've not ever forecasted anything above 1.94% until, you know, other things have to happen. But we have to realize that every single new cycle that that 10-year yield falls doesn't really retrace back to the previous highs. So is this the case here? You know, uh, hmm. the rate of growth of everything is going to slow down. Right. That shouldn't be a surprise. You know, we're not a fast growing economy. We just have this the, the rebound effect from COVID and, and the fiscal uh, stimulus and everything. So growth will slow down. So the question is, do we continue the long term downtrend of lower yields and we don't get above two percent on the 10 year yield and we just stay in this range, kind of like what we stayed in the range in the previous expansion? That to me is a very interesting dynamic that I'll be looking for in this new economic expansion. 
And one of the reasons that we may break out, if I understand your whole model correctly, is potentially demographics and household formation create a little bit of a push in the economy through well, here a, in, yeah, period? Yeah. Here in the US, it's it's very unique. We have a massive young replacement workforce. And, and you know we get that demographic push. You Obviously, you see it in housing data. But again, population growth is slowing, right? So it's not like we're going to get a boom in population growth. The boomers are leaving the workforce, they're dying. So we can replace them for now, but population growth like here and in a lot of other places is falling. So it's just, we don't have that kind of labor force where the rate of growth of population is going to accelerate higher, but we just have really solid replacement workers and consumers. And that really matters. And the housing data showed you this in 2020. Like for me, for all these years, I've always said two things with housing. You're never going to get 1.5 million housing starts until years 2020 to 2024 or start a year. That's been a big theme of mine. Everyone disagreed with me on that. They said, there's no way because we had an 82% crash in new home sales, we were working from such a low. So everybody kept on thinking we'd have escape velocity in housing data, you know, because then I go, no, the demographics aren't there. We, we don't have that kind of housing market. You have to wait until years 2020 to 2024. So we still actually haven't started a year at 1.5 million, but also the purchase application index, which is levels 100, 200, 300, 500, kind of that level was the peak during the housing bubble years. We're not going to get to that 300 level until years 2020 to 2024. We actually got there in the first few weeks of 2020. And then COVID-19 has really messed up all data lines. You have to do major COVID adjustments. So housing remarkably looks like where it should be, but it's because of the demographic force that we had the biggest housing demographic patch ever recorded in history. It's a once in a lifetime event. It's a five-year period from 2020 to 2024. And then add to that, move up buyers, move down buyers, cash buyers, investors, then the lowest mortgage rates ever. You have stable replacement buyer demand. That's the difference between, I think, me and other people. I don't call housing like a sales boom or boom in that fashion. In fact, probably on sales growth, I'm probably the least bullish. But you have unbelievable replacement demand in the time where you have the lowest mortgage rates ever So the concern should always be about home prices escalating in an unhealthy way, not crashing. And then this is why I pick on the housing bubble boys. I mean, it's a marketing gimmick. These are some of the worst talented, grifting housing people, real estate investor, gold bugs, whatever they are. Nobody, if these people were serious, which I actually don't believe them, nobody would read the census data and look at how soft that recovery was running into the best demographic patch and think that, Home prices were going to go down to 2012 levels, which right now would be an 89.7% decline in home prices. That's how wrong this crew was. So naturally, 2020 came, COVID came. It was supposed to bail out a lot of bad stock traders and housing crash people. They thought they were all in. Everything was in. So people know me for housing. It was like, okay, housing's not going to crash. Do not go into your crash mode. Wait until July 15th. That was the date I gave them. When the June data comes, you're going to see it's not going to happen. We already had the V-shaped recovery, and then they pushed it again like all housing crash people do to 2021. So this is why I created the term forbearance crash bros, right? A bunch of guys on YouTube running around saying, hey, forbearance, forbearance. Demand is stable, but that still doesn't matter. Forbearance. Forbearance was never bigger than the shadow inventory was in 2012. So they're already, they lost this discussion back in the peak of the forbearance data, but they had thought that forbearance would go to 10, 15, possibly 20 million, where I talked about, hey, listen, 
It's like the one-year anniversary of the forbearance crash bros nickname. I said, this data line is going to come down, right? All these homeowners were good before this. So when the job data comes back, they're going to stay there, right? This is their home. They're not investors. Housing is the cost of shelter to your own capacity to own the debt, right? So they're living here. They're having sex with their spouse. Their kids are going to school. They're not just going to go, oh, well, I'm just going to sell and we're just going to move. No. They have a vested interest of living in their homes. This is much different than 2002 to 2005. So forbearance will fall. And just give it time. And what happened over the year, forbearance data crashed. If there was one housing crash in the last year, it was forbearance data, nearly 3 million. You would need 3 million sales in declines to actually warrant any kind of housing collapse. Not only were they so wrong, the only thing that really declined in, in a meaningful way was the forbearance data. But isn't this all just Fed and government stimmy and isn't it all just waiting to, to crash, Logan? Yeah, economics is demographics and productivity, the rest is stamp collecting. You know, they're just, when you focus on the Federal Reserve, and this is actually, you know, last year in August, I wrote an article, demographics crushed the housing bears. And in that article, I said, the housing bears don't talk about demographics coherently. And a lot of this is because people made this assumption that millennials don't buy homes, right? Yeah. You know, and they do these 18 to 34 age charts, everybody's living at home or, you know, student loan debt crisis of the people who know me know that I just, I despise the student loan debt crisis. But the notion that millennials don't buy homes, even though they started buying in 2013, so the one in the, over the last seven years, whenever I speak at a conference, I say people, they rent, they date, they mate, they get married. Three and a half years after marriage, they have kids. Housing's a 2020 to 2024 20, story. If you look at when people get married this time, everything's done a little bit later. So when this comes, you just got a nice little push from this group and that's it. There's your replacement buyer demand. And then you got move up, move down, cash investors, everything. Housing will be fine. But if the notion that millennials were poor, broke, student loan debt crisis, living in their basement, of course you're going to be wrong. So in that article, I said, home sales are going to be positive. That was like in the summer. People are like, now you're really crazy. Nope, home sales are going to be positive because the front-loaded purchase application data was running at 25 to 33%. Never really does that very often. So it was just makeup demand. So we had all this makeup, we had this surge in housing data in the second half, which was really remarkable to see, but it, it was just makeup demand. In fact, I still argue to this day, we never got back to the home sales we should have had in 2020. We huh. ended that year at 5.64 million. That is only 130,000 more homes bought than 2017 level. So this is not like a credit bubble boom and people are, but no, people buy homes to live in. They do that every year. Millions and millions of Americans buy homes since 1996, even when interest rates or mortgage rates were at 8%, 7%, 6%, 5%, 4%. It's really rare in America to have sales under 4 million. I, was, I would say authentically, it only happened one period in 2008, the, the tail end of the housing bubble crash. And what had happened then was also, that was the demographic weak point where prime age labor force declined. Then you just work your way up, right? It was going to be a very slow, I mean, housing was as boring as it got, you know, past 2012. The only interesting time was 2018 for the housing market, which is if you people actually go into the real detailed work of 2018, you can see what was happening in 2020. You just work your way up and then here it is. And also a lot of housing bears are also anti-central bank people. So they think the bond market's a bubble. 
Like, right. you know, for four or five decades, the bond market's a bubble and something's going to happen or the MBS. If you really want a bad housing conversation, go into any discussion where they talk about MBS. That is like a black hole. I rarely talk about MBS because it's like the worst take of housing economics ever. I finally had to write an article for Housing Wild. I was like, what are you guys doing here? What, what is this? You're not talking about demographics. People look at home prices, like the nominal home price growth and base everything off that without using per capita wages. They're just not very good at this, right? And so historically, this was it, right? They all went in in 2020, biggest whip in history. Then they went into 2021 because forbearance for some reason was going to crash. Not demographics rates, it was forbearance, whiffed again. So you got back to back, the biggest whiffs ever in history from one of the biggest internet crash cult groups we've ever had in history. Well, I, I would like to maybe put a little finer point on something that you said. You said people just aren't very good at this. I would argue they're very good at garnering attention, which may be their actual game. Yes, yes. That's why I say they're fake bears. There's yes. no, in, in fact, I talk about this a lot. I don't believe these people are that bad because anybody like if this was the 1500s and you had to dispatch horses to go get information about some incoming demographic groups like two years later. Okay. Then I get it. But we have something called the internet. And if you have an above a second grade education and you can visually see there is no excuse, you can't read the census data. Like it's there. It was forecasted to be there. There are millions and millions and millions of people coming into their. So how? No, it's grifting, right? These are professional. And after the housing crash, a lot of these bubble boy websites and real estate YouTube people, they all, it's a model. It's a business model. That's hence the be the detective, not the troll. But I thought after failing from 2012 to 2019 and these two years, boy, we could just lock them down, right? Because it's like all these stock traders, you know, running around, oh, this is going to happen. This is, they're all net long. There's none of these people. These yeah. are all net long people, right? They think like this is some, oh, we're going to go short or we're going to go cash. And No, most people don't do that. None of these people like missed the rally. They all made money. And that's why I show my stock returns. I go, ask all these people for the returns. I promise you, they were all net long in their recovery. They all made money. They just love trolling the Federal Reserve for attention. And if they don't show you the returns, that also proves it. They all made money. They're all net long. They're mostly net long all the time. It's like most Americans are always working. So there is no magnanimous group of people that are in cash waiting to buy or stuff like that. So it's just... It's part of the post-2008 trolling of these internet sites, Facebook, Twitter, and everything. And everyone went, you know, baby boomer crazy, bearish, and longest economic expansion in history, longest job expansion in history. COVID, they missed the recovery, but they didn't. They're all net long stocks. They just talk a lot. So when you were looking, I mean, in March, uh, I, you know, I would be lying to say that I wasn't concerned about some sort of deflationary bust. Because I was just worried if you stop the whole world, what actually happens? I, I never had seen anything like that in my life. How long did it take you to sort of process, okay, this is what life is. This is what we're like, was the government coming out and sort of stabilizing the bond market? Was that really big for you? Or did you, you never know, the, really lose conviction? Was, uh, I think it was the 23rd. I think it was March 23rd when the Federal Reserve went all in. Yeah, And I think I tweeted out, you know, kind of me, bald head, doing a Hulk pose. And I said, oh, here it is. We're on. Game is on. 
And for me, it was like, so March 12th was the last good jobless claims data. March 18th was the last good purchase application data. So you got to, for me, it's like, okay, I got to find a time frame that I can actually write the model and I need the, I need the 10 year yield above 60 without the margin bond selling. That was some crazy action as well. And then the St. Louis financial credit index that's falling. And then we go with it right there. But this environment has been, is the best trading environment I'll ever see in my life. It was just like, for me personally, because I don't write about stocks. And I mean, once in a while I might tweet something, you know, on housing or, or something about it. It's not something I do, but I was like, oh my God, I'm going to retire. This is, I've been waiting for a situation like this for so I am going to retire literally by June 5th of 2020. I said, I'm done. Retire from the mortgage business. Goodbye. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's just like, I knew this was going to be, you know, 2020 and especially 2020 and 2021. You're never going to get an environment like this. And there's a lot of other things going on stock trading wise that were different, but it was a crazy time. And I, I totally understand people thinking, at first, we were going into a depression or, you know, what, what's going to happen? Small businesses are all, everyone's going to, you know. But if you just followed a few data lines and then you saw the data recovering, like people were shocked that first big job number and everything. And, and nobody really wanted to believe it. Like, even though the data lines were getting good, it was really hard. People like, oh, this is an L shape. This is a W. This is something I've written. Do not talk about economic shapes of recovery. Like it was like one of my rules in these updates I do with, if you're talking about economic recovery shapes, you're just, you're missing the point. The recovery is happening and you're trying to make a story narrative. No, you know, it was actually one of the better recoveries for low wage workers. People were getting paid, you know, everything was happening so fast and literally people froze, even though the data was good. And by the time, even in December, people were just, they were still bearish everything. And, oh, this is going to, this can't last once the stimulus, literally they, everyone discounts the people that are working, right? You know, so even the worst levels of COVID, you had 133 million people working and then you gave everyone money. That's how you want to plug any hole in any kind of recession. There you go. So the backdrop was there, right? For this to happen. And just the whole 2008 mentality, I think a lot of people just could not come to grips that we were having this unbelievable V-shape recovery and the U.S. economic data was outperforming the world, and especially the housing data had already front-loaded and took off well ahead of everyone because it broke out in February. Hopefully now people can understand if you just track a few things, and if those things aren't recovering, trust me, nothing else will, but they were recovering early. It's just a lack of faith yeah. in what you believe in. And if you if you do not have faith in your models or anything, then you're kind of in, you're waiting, you're right, you're froze, you're, fro- you're frozen. You just have to wait to see what happens. Get ahead of that. When the data gets better, you just got to believe it. I think that was one of the key points I tried to talk about last year. When continuing claims were falling, go with it, right? You know, you can't just sit there and think that, you know, the economic, it was such a deep contraction. You have so much headway, to so much ground to make up in this fast time that I think it just shocked so many people in 2020. Yeah, I think that's right. I do want to put something out there that is important, and then I'm going to pin something for our minds. The pin thing is in the circles that I run in, a lot of people are like, ignore macro and macro led you to retirement. So I'm going to change that. And I'm going to say maybe incorporate some macro occasionally, but importantly, because it does sound, you know, like you're super happy and you made all this money and whatever. I think it's really, really important to highlight that you haven't charged rent since March of 2020, right? 
Oh yeah, at the um, uh, when March when and when the end of March came, I have a tenant, single mom, has a kid. I just said, hey, listen, I'm not going to collect rent until COVID's over. That's kind of what I said. And one thing I I asked people, like you know, I, I'm not one of these people. Hey, listen, you shouldn't collect rent. There's a lot of people who have mortgages and they have to collect. I said, if you are doing well, you know, this is the time where you should help. I'm like the hate I got back for that was just like hysterical. I had people, I haven't even had celebrities come on my Facebook page and tell me, what are you doing? What do you mean people have to pay rent if they have money and stuff? So people took that the wrong way. So one of the things on that pinned tweet wasn't, wasn't so much about just not collecting rent. It's about donating to multiple different causes throughout the year. Even today, didn't co- not collecting rent in 2021 until 2022. My tenant never lost their job or anything like that. But it was just like, this is one time where if you could help out, if it doesn't impact you financially, like, and like I took a $50,000 hit on that, taking all the expenses and everything you got to put into the house. But some of us have done really, really well. You know, if you could just help out a little, it won't hurt you. If it yeah. hurts you, then okay. You know, like a lot of real estate investors, well, what? I said, listen, you're not a millionaire, so it, you can't do it. And then they get mad. Oh, but I have. I said, no, no, you're not. You wouldn't get upset at me for asking this. I'm not even asking you and you're already mad about it. I Trust me, you can't do this. You don't have that kind of cash flow. That's how you get it, guys, who talk a lot of smack. You just throw it back. And I'm not asking you to do it. You can't do it. You got to feed your family. They get so mad. <laughs> you don't know me. I said, well, you're not going to do it. So I said, it's a matter of press. I, I don't care. I'm not talking to you. I've got yeah. some really wealthy friends. Trust me. Make a lot more money than you do. I'm more talking about them. You go go back and just relax. It's all going to be good. So Yeah, well, I think it's a really cool example that you set when you did that. And I think leaving that as a pin tweet is very cool. Yeah, so. and, and the ability to see how it changes someone's life. Like that was like, to me, that like that's a reward. If you ever have that ability to give that a reward to someone, you know what that is. A lot of the the stock percentage returns was to troll back on stock traders. Who were, I do think that's really funny when you do that because like, your returns just, are as I good as they come. I literally do it because I'm just like begging. I'm saying, I just people, please show me your returns. Show me that you made money. You know, you didn't make enough money. You didn't have a 300% plus 2020 or 180% year to day in 20. But I know you made money. And it's just like, I know they won't do it. Because yeah. I'll like break it down to the dollar amount, to the cent amount. I just like, and a lot of these people, some of them don't. I have 20 fake names and running around this. And I was just like, they won't do it. It's just my way to troll. Because I never done that before. But it was just like, okay, I'm going to make a lot of money trading stocks. I'm just going to throw it back. Because everyone used to say, well, if you're so smart and this is going to recover in 2020, you should make a lot of money in the stock market, right? You know, I go, you know what? You're right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. That is a fantastic point. I think I'm going to you know, do that you this are time. Absolutely, you know, everybody <laughs> says, you know. Like Kyle Bass comes on CNBC. If I knew where stocks are going, I'd be retiring to beach. You don't retire in a beach. You could retire in your condo in Irvine, California with your socks on and your sweatpants on in 2020. <laughs> you don't retire in a beach. So it was a little bit more playful for a bunch of people who just troll around trying to say they're great stock traders. That, and they're basically net long, 3 to 5% positions. It's just like, come on, Really? So even to this day, you know, I get a few people that might show some, I don't know if they're real or not, but to show your name and face and and exactly the trade amounts and everything, I knew nobody would do that. So it's just kind of like my fun way to troll back on them because 
the hate mail and messages and everything and March and April, all oh, America's going to crash or love. It's like these people were rooting for this crisis. You know, I was just like, uh, uh-uh. you're not getting yeah. off free. When we get this recovery, we're just going to throw down back at you. And I guarantee you, none of you will say anything. And so far, silence, right? Yeah. I got to tell you, it stinks. Uh, well, it doesn't stink. I shouldn't say that. I, I'm very fortunate. And I, I did pretty well in 2020. And that feels bad to even say out loud. But it's also true. But there was a part of me that wanted to trade the back half of 2020 and I have had, I think this is right long term, but it does hurt looking back like professionally. I thought there was an opportunity to trade into some of like the really beaten up stuff, but I couldn't get myself to do it because I was trying to get myself to really think like an investor, but it really was a great market to trade. And I it probably was, you know should what? have it traded. Was, and probably the mistake I made, and I, I'm never going to do this again, when you're up 300% in 2020, and I found a way to get off the Facebook algorithm. Facebook is just like one of these terrible websites, but I, I, I got it to where people don't talk to me, but people were asking me about that. And I made the mistake of telling people like my two biggest positions in 2021 were AMC and Tilroy. And I'm not a Wall Street bets person. I have a Reddit account, but I'd never go in there, but there were different reasons for me. And GameStop was a big was actually the biggest position I had in 2020, just because I was playing the console the Q4 console uh, play. And then I didn't realize that Roaring Kitty actually follows me on Twitter. Yeah, and then we, that we guy had, tagged me once. <laughs> yeah, and then we had a conversation a few times. So hmm. I actually you know, and went back, oh, we did talk. I'm not part of that trading group. So when the Q4 play happened, I was completely happy with the GameStop position, but I think I sold my last share at 60 and then it just took off. So I'm, I'm not part of that, but I learned from that on AMC, which AMC was a reopening play. I was a big commodities person in this rebound. You know, energy and steel were like big for me. But AMC, after the news came out that the streaming, the stock went from like five to two. And I was like, this has the potential to take off. And when it did, I didn't give up on it like I did with uh, GameStop. Huh. So because of the environment. Sometimes when you trade, the environment actually leads you. And so it worked out really well, just that stock and Tilroy as well. But I'm never doing that again because then everybody asks you about stock. And I was just like, no, that's not what I do. Just go away. I'm an economics person. But. Yeah. Well, I have a bit of that. I say uh, that I don't want people to listen to me. I don't mean to be disingenuous when I say that. I have a podcast. I obviously want people to listen. But what I really don't want people to do is listen to the conclusions. So when we were doing you know, the background, you said, what was it like going from law to finance? I mean, I, I had to figure out how to invest my own capital. And this podcast is partly me learning how to invest my own capital on the fly. I've been doing it for five years, so it's not as if I'm just an amateur. But I almost view myself more as a financial entertainer now than, I mean, I am an investor, but that's a totally different part. And I just hope that people separate that. And much yeah, in the same yeah. way that you're like, I don't want to be giving you stock tips. Yeah. That's and, how and I it, feel. Like if, in, if in I'm fact, exploring an idea, it's an idea. Just like do your own shit. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, that's why I don't do podcasts. I refuse. Huh. Like I, I do podcast interviews. I don't do podcasts for myself. I don't feel like I'm that person. I can even be that person. I could run these models and, and give people ideas. I don't think I'm that entertaining. I think the, the people I might engage with, make some of the entertainment fact, like the, the way I write, you know, if people read the 
the housing wire articles. There's a little snarkiness in there. Yeah. But, you know, outside of this, I don't believe I can be a good podcast person because like in these, all those fleets, I'm just basically showing the charts and kind of doing that stuff. So it's just, it goes into the economics done right should be terribly boring. So I just don't feel I can be entertained. That's why I don't do podcasts. I do interviews. I think that that is very useful in, in the context, but man, it's just, economics really kind of shouldn't really be this exciting, you know, to yeah. just kind of trend data. You know, we just, we just had the mother of all historic crazy events. So it was one of these times where, wow, boy, this is an opportunity to show the economic game that actually matters that economic models do matter. Like the nerdy people are going to be right here if they just stick to their principles. And it ended up working out if, and, and hopefully we'll never be in a situation to be shocked like that. And I think that's one thing that, you know, Surge 2 and Surge 3 and even Delta, the fear of the virus working from the longest economic and job expansion ever in history was the real downdraft. Even with the second and third surge, economic data did not get hit like it did in March. Even with Delta, behavior has changed so much. Like I live in Irvine, California, Delta is out here. I go to the mall. It looks normal. You know, yeah. we actually, and this is something I've talked about a lot. In some ways it's difficult to say, but it's the truth. We have actually learned to consume goods and services as a country with an active virus infecting and killing us. And that's what surge two and three and Delta show. Now, of course, there's things that do get impacted, but in terms of the consumption aspect, that was the big rebound. It's like, we all like, oh, we're all alive. May 18th, things have stabilized. Okay, we can consume goods again. We're going to buy homes again. And I think that was one of the bigger takeaways that I take back during this event. Yeah, I think never underestimate the American ability to consume, even with a yes. virus around you. We'll yes. figure it out. Yeah, and I, I always tell people, don't think Americans are like soft. We are not a soft country. We are pretty much, we're badass people. Even my biggest detractors i mean they get out they work they raise their kids you know you know we, yeah well we don't, part of being a bear is exploiting capitalism in a way yeah, i mean not all yeah. bears i don't mean to talk about all bears that way but like you know these guys that are just like playing a click game i mean you yeah, know that's, that's the thing and, and, and that's that's it's a hustle that's that's why i say hashtag fake bears you know like yeah. sev northman trader that guy's net long all the time you know it's just like every second is like he's holding a toaster into the, into the bathtub. He isn't. Trust me, he is net long all the time. He's making money. You know, it's this. It's just like the Federal Reserve has created these spawning clickbait people that is, they are entertaining to be, you know, but the way they write, the sentence structures or speech patterns, body language, when they talk, you can see that they're all net long people. You know? Well, you know what I think is so difficult about like the Fed and kind of not believing the recovery and not believing the data. I'm reading uh, Malbison's Think Twice, and and I think that this, it's all consumed in the same thing. Once you get something that touches politics, I don't know that people can be rational anymore. It's a main talking point for me. I say political economic theory is the worst. I refuse to even like engage. And I try to avoid that like the plague. It's just once you get into that atmosphere, that discussion, rationality is all gone. Yeah. Right? You know, where a single individual is almost like an omnipotent, all-powerful person and the entire scope of economic discussion is supposed to change uh, on a dime, not demographics, productivity, not what, what's happening in the business cycle. So 
political economic theory, that, that's why I, I, I like hated Facebook and I, I had to find a way to get off their algorithm. And it's like now it's like peaceful. Hardly anyone says anything. But Twitter, I can control that because I don't follow a lot of people. Uh, Instagram, don't follow a lot of people. But it's just that once you get into the political economic theory, it's just like that's not going to work. Right. And then we have that in economics. We have the gold bugs. We have the MMT people. Right. And they both clash all the time. And yeah. a, lot of, a lot of them were bearish people in the longest expansion because they're pushing their ideological takes on this. And some of it, some of them has value. Some of them don't. So if you want to do it right, you almost have to not be human. You have to yeah. take your emotional thing out of it. And just like and one of the things that I did, that's actually, I never have CNBC's audio on. Hmm. I don't listen. I don't read people's work. I don't really I want just, to look at them without the audio and I don't like the audio, I so mean, I never have it on I, anymore. <laughs> I don't I don't read a lot of people's work and I don't listen to audio. I just focus on it. And it's just like if you can do that, which I think is really hard to do, you're at a peace with yourself. And I think part of the thing is that the emotional response that people were having during COVID, I'm a social distance person. I mean, I, I don't hang around with people much anyway. So I was perfectly emotionally fine. In fact, the one thing I used to do every day that I didn't like to do, it was I had to go to the gym, you know, and I just have to put my sunglasses there. Like, I don't want anyone talking to me, but I was perfectly emotionally fine being at home and just working and doing the economic stuff. I think there was a lot of people that COVID emotionally impacted and they couldn't think right. Yeah. Right? And you get that. You get that. I mean, if you're, if you're a happy, emotional people loving person. And I got to see that with my eyes, how emotionally people got hurt because staying at home all the time, not what they're used to. So some of the economic takes that weren't, you know, I could just see that people were dealing with stuff. And of course, in recent history, it's our first global pandemic, right? We have a global, we're going to have over 700,000 Americans are going to be dead. People got sick. This is not this is the one time where, yeah, you have to emotionally check yourself and make sure you're okay. Because a lot of people, it wasn't working well for them. And you, you, it makes sense. This is, we're not used to this. We're used to getting up, going to work, doing stuff, hanging out on the weekends. We interact. We took that away from us. So the psychological impacts of COVID are still long lasting until we get it out of the system and we can just go back to life again. It's going to take some time for some people to recover. Yeah, well, I'm just getting over it. I'm not sure. I think now I have a higher probability of changing my life going forward than before we got it because, I mean, I messed my wife up and like we got shots and it still messed her up. So I'm I'm just, you know, whatever, we'll see. I'm happy I'm in a warm climate now and I can be outside more often. I just, I don't yeah. care if I never have to go inside. Like I, <laughs> I prefer not going inside, so I just won't. Yeah. I, I feel yeah, bad for and, my and people whole, that are back in Chicago. Work. The whole work from home model, man, I tell you, that 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 to me is like the most exciting thing ever because that is a brand new variable that changes the entire landscape of what housing or economics is that you can actually work not near your house, you know? So, so many people's residential- Not near your work. Yeah, yeah. You mean not, work not, from not, your home. Yeah, not, yeah. not near your work, yeah. So that's, I, I'm waiting to see how that turns out. I My bias is I want this to be a something that- grows and becomes something. But in my mind, I'm always thinking what happens in a crisis typically stays in a crisis. Things revert back to normal. 
So I need mm. a little bit more time to believe it. But I do think uh, I think we're close to making this hybrid thing permanent. Yeah, that 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 could work. That that definitely could work. And we saw a growing trend before this happened. So there's going to be a change regardless. It's the amount of change. You know, is it just going to be 15% of the workforce? Is it going to be 22% of the workforce? You know, that in itself would be huge. You yeah. know, to have 15 to 22% of the workforce, that would be like epically big. That is the really exciting thing to see how that shapes up. Because if you can actually move in, you know, somebody lives in San Francisco as a condo and lives works in a tech company and they said, okay, you can move wherever you want and you can still work here. That person is going to buy a bigger home 30 miles east or 50 miles east or whatever. It doesn't even have to leave the state of California, but that changes a lot of things. And, you know, here in America, we have seven areas where it's 50% of the population, 50% of the GDP growth, everything. And then we're all this land and cheap homes everywhere else. And people, you know, I always thought even before COVID was going to, even before COVID came, people were going to move anyway, right? You know, the whole rent, date, mate, marriage model, people don't live in apartments when they have kids, they'll move to single family homes. Americans traditionally like single family homes. So that was going to happen regardless, but this work from home model can facilitate even faster growth on that. What do you think of the idea that housing's the economy and that a lot of jobs, like the multiplier effect from investment in housing is large? Well, he, here's the thing. When we think of housing, it's to me, it's always like new home sales and housing starts, right? Those are mm -hmm. the things that get incorporated into GDP. When you but think then of, you got repair and remodel, which is huge. Yeah. yeah. And then, then there's the existing home sale market, which is... A lot of it is just a transfer of commissions, moving trucks, and then the buying of maybe new. <laughs> That's a very good way to put it. I think you just like articulated my biggest problem with the housing market in general as a transfer of commissions and moving. Yeah, trucks. it's a transfer of existing home sales, it's a transfer of commissions, and then you, you have to get a moving truck and then moving people. That is usually the case. And then if you want to buy a new refrigerator or stuff like that, that works out. But that's the existing home sales. The The real multiplier. I mean, it's really when new home sales grow, housing starts grow, construction jobs grow, big ticket items, you need a refrigerator, you need a washer and dryer for those new homes. Those things to me is where housing gets its impact. The existing home sale market's a little bit different. Of course, there's always the remodel and fix up and in that aspect. But I've always thought of that as more of a transfer of commission. Yeah. I guess the the reason that I'm asking you on the back of the conversation that we're having is if people are spending more time in their home, I think the idea that I don't believe that COVID was a one-time investment in the house. I think now that we're on the back end of it, people are looking around their office and they're saying, hey, maybe I want to do some work here. Or, you know, like I think the, the existing housing stock is pretty shitty. So well, that, that, that's the thing is that a lot of we have a lot of old homes. Yeah. You know, we have homes that are 40s, 50s, 60s, and they need to uh, be remodeled. We spend a lot of money on our homes anyway. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the we, we have TV shows to tell us, you know, how good <laughs> yeah, that's fair. the house to be. So <laughs> we kind of we kind of had this. And, and and I tell people that, you know, one of the one of the big housing stories, you know, housing tenure, the, the amount of people stay in the house from 1985 to 2007 was five years. Post 2008, 2008 to uh, 2021, it's probably going to be at 11 years now after this year. People are staying in their homes longer. You know, huh. we've been building bigger and bigger homes 
for many decades. I think in 1975, the median square foot home was 1,500. The peak in 2014 was 2,700 square foot. Family sizes have also been getting smaller and smaller during that period. So the house that you get necessarily could be, you know, the house for a very long time, unless you get a new job or you have more kids or you have kids, divorce, stuff like that. So people are just more vested in, in their house anyway. And then COVID happened and then you're sitting around and you're bored and you're thinking, okay, let's, uh, I want a new gym. I need a new office or stuff like that. So I, I know I did. I was like, I got to get a gym. 24 yeah. hour fitness is done, you know? So I, bought a bunch of gym equipment. I, I never have to go to the gym ever again. I'm completely happy about that. And I'm sure Are I'm you like, a Peloton user? What's your gym equipment choice? Kettleballs. Oh, nice. So I need something more heavy. I'm uh, not so much of a cardio person, but yeah, I, I was thinking I never have to go to the gym ever again. I am so happy. God, this is like, like your dream scenario. This, this created the, the change. I, like, I, like literally... <laughs> I hate to even say it because COVID was such a horrific event and people are dying. So much happened personally in my life that it's like I was able to retire. I don't have to go. Everything is, I'm set. I'm good. And this event facilitated an environment for that. The economic work went good. So I just count my blessings because I can't have anything personally better. It's just such a horrific. I've always was worried about global pandemics. You know, I used to joke with my gold friends. I said, listen, you guys need like a pandemic. A pandemic is like the worst case scenario. Airborne transmission in this global economy where people are flying around. And this is actually not the virus X that I'm worried about. You know, this was something that infected a certain age, certain group of people. And, and I'm worried about something that is ruthless and kills hundreds of thousands of people a day. And, and if it went after kids, forget about it. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, we hopefully we learn because I'm always like worried about that virus that does not show any mercy and it's quick. And yeah. this one wasn't that. So hopefully the next time, because remember the history of pandemics, this is not going to be the last one. And hopefully we're we're better suited for this. But thankfully, it wasn't that ravishing, killing one that... You just shows no mercy to anyone at any age. Yeah, it's weird to see the dichotomy between, you know, people that did fine and people that didn't. And I think it, to reiterate your point, if you're somebody and I'm talking to myself right now, that is okay. It makes sense to give back at this stage, right? And has for a while. So I got to let's get back to housing if that's okay with you. Absolutely. So I I think it's interesting that you're bullish. It, to, I know why, but if I was reading you, right, you're bullish on the economic ex expansion right now, and yet you say it's the unhealthiest housing market that you've ever seen. So do you mind yeah. uh, defining yeah, it, unhealthy? It, it's really, it's Because really, I put that on Twitter and I knew that yeah, people would, would yeah. bite at it. <laughs> yeah, people would bite at it. It's, it's weird because for me, people think of me as like this raging housing bull person, Right. And I'd have to explain this on why it was because when I went on Bloomberg in January, I said, listen, we have to worry about home prices taking off. Yeah. You know, these, these kind of people worried about this 30, 40 home price crashing, it's not going to work. So what had happened was by the end of summer last year, I thought to myself, oh boy, the number one thing I was worried about for housing in years 2020 to 2024, it looks like it's about to happen. 
you know, so I wrote kind of an article saying, hey, real home prices are about to take off. It's going to get harder. And the way I explain this is that if you look at, and I think this is a real critical housing discussion that I, I don't see anybody else having. In, if you look at total inventory levels in 2014, they've been falling pretty much every year. What else happened in 2014? Purchase application data adjusting to population hit an all-time low, and we were working from their levels. We were going up. So you have falling inventory with rising purchase application, no credit boom, nothing like that, but inventory kept on falling, right? So then here comes 2008. So the housing marketing gimmick is that I'm here on YouTube, I'm gonna talk about a crash, or I'm gonna be like David Rosenberg and rates are gonna go up higher and housing's gonna crash. 2008 had about 5% mortgage rates. Real home prices went negative briefly in 2019, but it didn't really send nominal home prices negative. Inventory levels, didn't move too much, a little bit higher. People are more settled in. Financial profiles are really good. It impacted the new home sales market a lot. You know, if you look at 2018, the builder stocks were down 30% plus. On paper, it looks like housing is peaked. The uh, confidence index was falling. Monthly supply broke above six and a half months. And then all of a sudden, you know, new home sales weren't growing. But I, I argued back then, this is not a peak. Rates are going to fall down, housing will recover, but we're running into this really big demographic patch. So when 2020 came, housing broke out. I cannot stress that February data before COVID had was the biggest, most prolific month. And housing was, home prices were already up 8% medium bed. Then we were about to take off in a fashion nobody was ready for. The problem was that happened and we got that data in March, literally the middle and end of March. So nobody cared about it. So what occurs is that inventory falls even more because demand picks up a little bit more than what it is. It's just a continuation of that trend. Then you get forced bidding, right? You know, in the previous expansion and recession, you had forced selling. You have forced bidding, which to me is when you get days on market to be a teenager, you know, 13 to 17 days, that is not a healthy outcome because this is shelter, right? This has nothing to do with demand or it's overheating or anything like that. And that's why I always stress, if you look at existing home sales, it's not that much higher than the peak that we had in the previous expansion. But when you get forced bidding, you get these escalated home price levels and you can see it, it's gone vertical. That is not a healthy market in any fashion. Yeah. People just want to buy homes to live in. This is not an investment thesis or, or you know, home prices are going to crash or anything like that. This aspect is not helpful because it's a raw shortage of homes. And that's the unhealthiest aspect. We did not have this issue in the previous expansion. Demand is good. Demand's better, of course. It's been a big theme of our work for so long. But we have to get off of this low inventory because it's facilitating higher price growth. And one of the mistakes I see housing bears make this year is that they see this Fannie Mae confidence index, and it's like the worst confidence index ever to buy a home. And I totally agree with it. If you're a buyer of a home, you're not losing your bid to one or two people. You're losing your bid to 15 to 20 people. Think about that as you're a home buyer. You're qualified. You have 20% down. You're ready to go. You're ready to move in for the family. You're just getting outbid. Yeah, you your, know, your confidence is actually that you're not going to be able to acquire yeah, the it's, house. Yeah, it's, it's not just, that the housing market will crash. Yeah, it's it's a it's a completely different aspect. So in that context, 
That's why I've always, you know, in every interview I talk about, it's the most unhealthiest because there's just not enough inventory. Now, inventory has been picking up since February. You know, I, I'm writing these, you know, home price growth will cool down starting in April. And there's multiple articles. I, I got to explain why. So what we want to see in America is that we don't want inventory to fade down like we usually do in fall and winter. We want it to, all this inventory, it's still historically low, but we want it to stick and have it go higher. And then once people have choices, the bidding wars go down and then we're okay. Whatever yeah. happens to the housing market, it's okay. But this is the forced bidding action. And also another thing that people don't talk about much, if you're a seller, are you going to sell in this house? And if you can't get, you know, maybe a three month extension or anything living in the home, are you going to sell this house and be able to find a home? Yeah, no, this is... Yeah. I had a realtor call me. She was trying to create a transaction on this piece of land that we just bought. And I said, look, here's the problem. You got to find me something to move into. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I understand why this is good for you, right? You're going to make commissions on the sale and potentially the buy. I have no idea why this is good for me. And until yeah. you can answer that question, I can't do this. And that's that's the other aspect of the unhealthy side is that there are sellers out there who go, what am I going to do? This never happened from 2008 to 2019. You know, there's all this thing about there's no homes to buy. If we had more homes, there were plenty of homes to buy from 2008 to 2019. The the low inventory myth has been a big theme of my work for many years. We never had that kind of housing market to where people didn't have choices. This is not it. This is the unhealthy aspect. If you don't have choices, you're forced to bid. And then it just eats up into the affordability. So the faster we get off of this, the better. Because there is no crash coming, right? It didn't happen. And one way to convince people is that now I ask people, okay, so you're talking about a 50 or 60% home price crash. You're telling me educated high income earners with positive cash flow are going to sell you their house at a 56 to 86% discount to rent at higher cost. That's where we're at right now in housing with the crash people. They are, they're in. These people stay much longer historically. They're going to be fine. They're not going to go, oh, well, somebody on YouTube says it's going to crash. And nobody does this. I, my, my joke is that there's no person talking to their <laughs> wife, go, honey, we're going to sell our house. And when the case shiller index goes down to the 200-day moving average, then we're going to buy our house back. That conversation is never happening. Yeah. Your wife will slap you and say, "Get go, go back to bed. No. Yeah. Nobody, it's not the stock market. The velocity, if you look at the stock market, margin debt goes up and down with stocks. Housing debt is different. The whole transaction, it, it doesn't have that velocity. In fact, on April 10th, for my own blog, I wrote like, what would it take for housing to crash? It was a very condescending article. April 10th this year? Last year. Last year, okay. Last year, yeah. And I was just like, like all these things have to happen. It's not going to happen. Just wait until July 15th and then you'll see the June date. You'll, you'll be fine. But a lot of it is what we call forced selling. People, I'm going to I have sell my house at 20, 30% off when they don't need to. And that's the beauty of realizing credit, right? Understanding credit. From 2010 and on, fixed low debt costs because pretty much majority of the country has 30-year fixed products, right? The yeah. debt structure of a 30-year fixed product is different than, let's say, an option arm or interest-only loan or 100% financing. They get it. That payment is fixed. Every year, your wages increase. You refinance. You're really in a good spot. Like I always say, these homeowners in America right now are in the best spot ever. And like you cannot find sexier data than homeowners' financials right now. They they're the best. 
Household debt service payments is our all-time lows. Mortgage payment debt service at all-time lows. Nested equity. This is the complete opposite of what you saw from 2002 to 2005 with a credit boom. So they're in, they're in it to win it. And that also creates a problem that people just don't sell and move as much. So inventory levels can go down. That's why I say this is the unhealthiest housing market. It's not because demand's bad or a crash or anything. It's because the days on market are so low that people are in a forced bidding action. And we should root and we want inventory levels to go up. I, I, I had a five-year cumulative growth of 23%. I said, if home prices could just go 23% in these five years, that'd be great. You know, people say, wow, there's no way home prices could go up 23%. So you have no idea what's coming, right? And you can see what's happening here. But part of this is that the shortage of homes is facilitating it. So this is why I say replacement buyer demand. If it's a hot housing market, you have a credit boom. We don't have a credit boom. We just have millions and millions of people looking for shelter and just keep it at that. That's why I always use the term demographic replacement buyer demand, built-in demographic. Look at rent inflation now, right? Well, how's that happening? If people were so poor and couldn't afford rent, you know, rent inflation wouldn't take off. No, we have a lot of people that need shelter and rent as well. So you get these escalation costs. So this is why... I say it's it's the unhealthiest market for the exact opposite reasons that were the case in the previous housing bubble, the peak and the crash. Yeah, you set up the tweet a little bit too easy for me, but I had to use the clickbait. I couldn't help it. <laughs> no, I, trust me, I, I see that. You know, it's funny. As soon as like, I said it, I was like, oh, people yeah, are not going to understand what yeah, I'm saying. <laughs> I, I get that all the time. People, whoa, 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 you always talk about the unhealthiest market. So it, it has to be explained. Like a lot of my work is... People have to read the work because there's a lot of details in there and it, it's not so headline driven. There, you have to like read and there's lots of charts and it explains. But this one is something I've tried to do for a long time. Look at 2014 inventory levels. Look at purchase application data. That inventory level was falling. 5% mortgage rates didn't even budge that. You know, when people thought, oh, existing home sales are about to crash. 5%, no, it didn't even budge the inventory level much. So when rates go lower and that demographic kicks in, it draws that inventory down. Now, let's say COVID wasn't here. Let's say I'm thinking about this in 2018. I thought this would happen in 2022 to 2023. Those are the next two years are the are the sweet spot years in U.S. history. You know, age, I think 29 is the biggest this year. We start to get that, that first time median home buyer age is 33. So we get into those two sweet spot years. So I am just rooting for inventory to just go up and days on market grow, and then I could stop saying that because then it's choices, right? Because yeah. I've already I've already lost my five year cumulative price growth in like eighteen months, so I'm I'm done. I've already ran out of that. So it's just inventory choices, healthier market, less bidding. That's what that unhealthiest housing market is is all about. So if I read like I've I've read the home builders, their forecast, they're all forecasting double digit growth. Is uh, well. I shouldn't say all. I'm certain Dr. Horton is, and I'm pretty sure at least two others are. Is that how inventory solves itself? Or are you looking? No, for I've people? never. I, you know, it, it, it's interesting. You're never going to get a construction boom in America. Why the is builders, that? Just because the builders, the builders learn, and I think this is where my housing work is different than everyone else's. We overbuilt homes in the previous expansion in terms of the housing crash. Nobody believes this. Everybody keeps on saying we never built enough homes. Builders only build off their demand curve. They do not care about economists. They don't care about the people. They only build what they can sell. 
So in 2002 to 2005, we had a really, really, really high growth in new home sales and in housing starts. What happened was an 82% crash, and then we had the weakest housing recovery ever. So people kept on saying, well, the builders have to build homes. They're not going to. They are not. They, you're never going to get 1.5 million starts because you're never going to get above 737,000 new homes until, until 2020 to 2024. So to 2013, missed estimates for the sector. 2014, missed estimates for the sector. 2015, missed estimates of the sector. 2018, 5% mortgage rates. Their stocks are down 30%. One of the builder CEOs says, it's the worst fourth quarter since the Great Depression, while everyone says they have to build more homes. They have a disadvantage because they have a product that is more expensive than this massive existing home sales market. Mm. So when rates rise, right? The builders are in, in a sense always cheap, but when rates rise, they get looked at differently and they are mindful of this. And what we saw here, new home sales really broke out. Housing starts broke out right, right on cue. That's fine. Lumber prices took off. It didn't matter to them. They had pricing power. They made you pay up for it. Yeah. So now what happened is that the builders like, whoa, 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 whoa. They don't want to push this, right? So inventory is already above six months now for the new home sales market. We're at 6.2. So people go, what's going on here? The builders know what they're doing. They are always going to protect their margins at all costs. People think, oh, lumber prices are down. Home prices are going to go down, you know, 10, 50. No, they're not. Builders are just <laughs> going to make more of the margin. Yeah. That's how it works, guys. You know, so when they see this increase in inventory, you know, demand is fine. You know, it's just a lot of housing data got disjointed because it was like a parabolic move in the second half of 2020. So they're going to work it. They're going to manage it. When rates go up, though, that sector gets impacted more than the existing home sales. These are almost like two different planets, the new home sales market versus the existing home sales market. And they're competing against this massive existing home sales market that is cheaper has a geographical advantage than what the new home sale market wants to do. But for the first time, I could say this with confidence, where I didn't think it was the case in the previous expansion, the builders really benefited from the existing home sale inventory being at all-time lows. Because you, you want to get into a, a knife fight with 30 other buyers, put 100000 more than the asking price, or build a new home, which is already more expensive. But hey, it's new. I got it. I just have to wait. So I'm mindful that the builders are working from a very low bar and it's not a very high level of sales, but they've lived off that low bar in housing starts and new home sales for the previous expansion. So they had legs to move up. Sales are higher now, housing starts are higher now. So they lost that low bar backdrop. So as monthly supply rises, people go, what's going on? People I said, listen, the builders are just doing what they do best. Protect their margins, manage it. That's what business do because it's a they have to make money. That's why I would say, unless you get the government involved to start paying for the stuff, the builders are just going to go slow and steady. Yeah. And then I always say with rates, watch the housing market if, if this happens, if the 10-year yield gets above 1.94%, mortgage rates get above 3.75%, not something that was, that was going to happen in 2021, but take a look and see how the builders act to that. Because when you have all this price inflation, because the median price, if you look at 2020 median sales price, boy, the builders really... The builders did some really, really good business model work. DR Horton said, we can't raise prices enough. They said like prices yeah, are not they, the impediment to buying. Yeah, yeah they they just, they milked the margins. It just, just unbelievable. They did, even with lumber prices, people are oh, lumber prices. People are going to eat it. They had pricing yeah. power. They authentically had pricing power. 
And the reason they're holding back is because they're not 100% sure of that yet. But mortgage rates are still low. So when rates rise up, and I know 3.75 and higher doesn't seem like a lot, but I said the same thing in 2013. You know, I said, oh, when rates go above 4%, housing is going to slow down. No, the mortgage payment is not, an, that's not how it works. It's the marginal home buyer that gets hit. But the new home sales sector is different than the existing home sales market. Their, their competition is so much bigger and cheaper than them that they have to be more mindful than, let's say, a, an existing home seller, right? Yeah. So they're two different marketplaces, two different dynamics. That's why I look at them in, the, in, in a much different light. That's interesting. So the people that currently own their house... I mean, this makes, it's intuitively, it makes sense. If you're going to sell your home, you sell your home, but the builders have a cost structure and whatnot that it makes it more risky when the rates go higher relative to the yeah, existing because stock. because they, they do not want to lower prices. I mean, first yeah. it's the incentives, but then, you know, they, they don't want to do that. And I think, I think 2008, like 2018, excuse me, was, was a really good year in terms of on paper, it looked like housing peaked because Builders' confidence was down big. Monthly supply spiked over six six and a half months is kind of like my key line. If you get if you get above six and a half months on a three month average, construction's on hold, right? You know, that, that's too much supply for them. We're at six point two months right now on the headline three month average, not there yet. So builders manage everything because they need to make money. An existing home seller who's already sitting on equity. They might have some seller, oh, I, I, could, I could sell at this price, I'll be okay. Builders have all this cost structure, everything, material cost, land cost, everything that they're dealing with. So if people are confused about why they are slow and steady, it's, I actually wrote that article for Housing Wire recently. I try to explain why things are just not booming. And I just fundamentally don't believe mature economies have like construction booms because they built in so much stuff already and, you know, Part of their population are, is, is dying off. So look at the builders in that light, and, and it makes sense with some of the things they've done in the previous expansion and in 2018 and now currently. So how does the inventory problem solve itself? Like what's what would cause you would have to have existing home sellers sell their houses, but then they got to have somewhere to go? Well, that's part of the problem. That's why That's why I really focus on the 2014 inventory levels to now. Now, naturally, since you don't have a credit boom in the existing home sales or housing market, inventory should rise. I, I gave targets 1.52 million to 1.92 million total inventories. If we get there, it's a manageable market. There's no more bidding. But I think what people have relied on the housing crash, what happened from 2002 to 2005, to be like a future model. It's just not the case. Forced selling into a declining housing market off a credit bubble is different than what we have here. So you have to worry about home prices getting to a certain level. Now, in the future, what could happen is that days on market gets longer. Sellers, because they have so much equity, they don't really need to sell at the peak or anything. They could, If demand weakens a little bit, they could sell even a little bit less. That's something down the line. That is more plausible. But if you're looking for housing starts to really save this, it's just that people write about where three to five million housing starts uh, short, we're never catching up to that ever. Yeah. Unless the government comes in and starts paying and building. First of all, construction productivity is terrible. It's always been terrible. If anybody looked at the data for many decades, it's the worst sector we have. Land costs, regulation costs, everything costs too much for the builder. So unless the government steps in, I, I even wrote that this year, we're never going to see a construction boom, right? Unless the government steps in and pays people. I don't know if we have enough workers even to even have like the construction people want. 
people aren't going to say this. They said it from 2008 to 2019. We have to build more houses. And I was like, not going to happen. New home sales has to grow, right? Take a new home sales chart and take a housing starts chart from 1996. They are perfect. It is a perfect symmetry, right? Because they only build off their demand curve. And in the previous expansion, monthly supply was always higher from 2008 to 2019 than it was from any period from uh, 1996 to 2005. That's why I always say, life for the builder. I have this rule for the, for the new home sale market. When you get 4.3 months and below, life's great for the builders. They can do whatever they want. Hmm. 4.4 months to 6.4 months, it's okay. As long as new home sales are growing, it's okay. They'll, they'll do housing starts. 6.5 months and above, no, that's it. They're not, they're not going to do anything. I've always talked about that to give people a reason why I've always talked. I mean, I'm the guy who said, we're going to have the weakest housing recovery ever. We're not going to have 1.5 million starts. There's your reason. Your monthly supply was too high because demand was never that good. But in 2020, we got there and we held it for you know a few months. And now monthly supply is rising. Builders are managing, right? They're, they're doing what, what any business person would do. And that explains some of the lack of growth in housing starts. Hmm. How much of anything has to do with, or I shouldn't say how much of anything, I need to be more precise. How much of the inventory issue has to do with like private equity buying these houses? I've gotten that question before and I don't think <laughs> you know, that's you know, the issue, but I might be wrong. It's interesting. I, I put up a stat because this is, this is not the first time we've had this talk. From like 2011 to 2017, like private equity and Wall Street bought like 200,000 homes. There was like over 40 million homes bought. Yeah. So no, you know, there, there so are that's not the reason, huh? That's not the reason. I, I, it's just like, God, there's so many bad housing tanks and that's like one of them. There's a lot of real estate investors. There's a lot of rental properties. There's a lot of properties where people rent. One question I get a lot is why aren't investors selling their homes? Well, in a low interest rate environment, you know, what gets you, re what gets you yield? Yeah. Right? What's your alternative? Rent, rent. I haven't raised rent for my tenant for eight years. And then I just recently did like, I did some numbers what it would be if I was like a normal person. And I'm thinking, wow, that cash flow is really good. No wonder these people aren't selling. You yeah. know? So I've always talked about that, that these people, they don't look at it as the capital gains. They might use their equity as leverage to buy maybe more real estate, but that rental yield is just good. And, you know, for USA Today and the Washington Post a few months ago, everything I'm saying, guys, rent inflation is about to take off too. Right? Don't think it's just home prices. We have a lot of people that need homes and it's going to go off. And now you, now we see it on the rental side as well. Mother demographics, man, she does not play around. You cannot mess with her. When she brings you know, her legions of armies and you're not ready, she'll run you over. And that's kind of what happened with housing. It's just simply too many too many Americans need shelter and there's not enough supply. That, in a sense, is the inflation story here. It's not too much money or anything. There's just too many people, right? That's, that's interesting. Your, that's your inflationary cause. That's your home price cause. Mother demographics, she's the one, right? Blame her. I always say, you guys blaming the Fed or everything? No. There it is. That's a lot of people. That's why I always do those demographic charts over and over again. And like people go, wow, you're right. That's a lot of people. Really? You think this has been here for decades and now you're like, oh, no, these people are going to be homeless. These people make $100,000, They're just going to be homeless because some guy on YouTube said housing is going to crash. By the way, this is a marketing gimmick that they do every year. They call it the house trap. 
Why would you want to buy your home when your home prices are going to drop down five or ten percent? They do this every year. It's just it's such a marketing gimmick. Americans don't care, right? Americans yeah. buy homes, they buy shelter. They're not sitting there thinking, "Honey, I can't do this because so and so said I'm just going to wait." Your wife left you with another guy right now, right? That's, just, that's, <laughs> that's not a, how, now you're in that bigger house and you're single. Yeah, it's just like come on. That other guy paid more for his house. Yeah, so. <laughs> It's a lot of it is just marketing, grifting things. It's just like I don't know. If, I don't know if people just don't realize these people are faking it. Right? Yeah, normal people don't act this way. In fact, at a recent event, I talked about this. If there was one time in history where shelter was not going to be looked at because people were afraid of prices were going to crash, it would have been COVID twenty 2020 twenty in twenty twenty one. Right? You know, here's COVID. Everyone says home prices are a bubble. They're going to crash back to twenty twelve levels. Pause. Red light, green light, V-shaped recovery. Yeah. Millions and millions. More Americans bought homes with mortgages. Mortgages in 2020 and 2021 than any period from 2008 to 2019. Makes perfect sense. If you just adjust it to demographics, age, everything, looks normal. It's not a credit boom. It's not a sales boom. Just got a little bit more people because people, right? People demand inflation, right? That's a, that's a term I use a lot. Demand inflation. We we, we can create inflation because there's, we, unlike Japan or Europe, even China, prime age labor force, they're all in decline. We don't. We got the young kids. They're coming in. Millennials are people too. They buy homes. They have kids. They're nothing weird about them. Right? I thought that they were all like in student debt and yeah. uh, destitute, Logan. I don't know. There, there were so many bad takes in the last expansion, you know? So it should shock everyone. Everybody said millennials are poor. They're broke. They can't do anything. And now what? Now they're part of the K-shaped recovery. Yeah. They went from being broke and living in their basements to part of the K-shaped recovery. They're the problem. Well, I'll tell you what. You're not making me very enthusiastic. I'm not optimistic on our ability to, to solve the inventory problem after all this. That's inventory, a concern. Inventory should rise. The first wave of numbers I think about is wait till we get to 1.52 to 1.92 and then there'll be a balanced market in the sense that there'll be less bidding wars. Take it slow and steady. Don't think of inventory as like a velocity issue. Now, of course, forbearance when it ends, the evictions, moratoriums, there's going to be, there are going to be landlords who are going to sell their real estate investment properties. It's like, I'm sick of it. I don't want to deal with this. That should help a little bit. But again, forbearance was never going to be the massive inventory spike that people had forecasted. The way they look at housing economics is more applies to a stock rather than than the housing industry. Yeah. Well, that's what I, I was listening to Jeremy Grantham's bubble thesis this past weekend. And I was thinking to myself, okay, well, let's say that everything implodes. Unless everybody loses their job, really the risk in, in home ownership is that you lose liquidity or something because debt service coverage is very, very good right now. So I just don't, you it's know, hard for it, me to get my head around. It's the... When we think of recessions, you know, unemployment rates getting to, let's say, let's say 10%, a great finance. Of course, COVID was different, but you have to remember 90% of the country is working. And I think we lose perspective about that because everybody wants to put their ideological takes on it. And I, and I remember last year when people say, smart people, some of my economic friends, are, why are people buying homes? There's 20 to 30 million people unemployed. You forgot the 133 million people working. Yeah. The mortgage, the housing market, the U.S. housing market, in a sense, just needs 4 million mortgage buyers a year. That's it. So out hmm. of 133, the demographics where rates are, why wouldn't it? 
So I think sometimes people lose perspective of the people working and they think the smaller portion of the unemployed is going to create some type of titanic event where you could marginalize any sector if it has a leverage or credit growth. Housing never had any of that in the last expansion. Yeah. You know, what's another sector that has imploded twice? The oil sector, right? We've had two crashes in oil since 2016, right? And we see that in rig counts. Rig counts had an explosion up from 2010 to 2015. Then we saw a crash once and then we saw a crash again. The oil industry is probably going to be very mindful of their supply situation. They don't want to crash another time. So if you don't have leverage credit expansion, you have to be mindful that, I mean, the easiest way to say it, if there's no boom, it's hard to have a bubble bust. Yeah. You know, so that's that's how you have to look at it. And remember, demographic profiles matter. So if you have a demographic fall off, one of the things that I've been talking about for a very long time, jolts 10 million. I was tweeting jolts 10 million many months ago. I said, we're going to, we're job openings are going to get over 10 million. If you look at the, that trend in job openings, and then you think the baby boomers are leaving, they're dying off. There's parts of the U.S. that have no prime age labor force growth. Job openings are going to get to 10 million. I think, you know, we could get up to 14.79 million at some point. That makes sense. Telling people that job openings were going to be like 10 million, I got like a twilight zone look. Hmm. Like what? No way. There's no way. And, and the same thing happened in the previous expansion when I wrote, and we're going to get 6.21 million job openings. Like, no, there's 96 million people out of work. It's like, nope, that's, that's a lie. And we're going to get 6.21 million job openings. When it happens, don't be shocked. So. Well, I think it's very cool to talk to you and to follow you and, you know, see you data driven in a world where the bearish takes really do get the clicks. It's much easier to be a bear and get attention, I think. So yep, and uh, luckily, I never needed the money to do that. So I'm very fortunate. So I, <laughs> well, I it's nice to I, find I you. To I was like, I was like, no, I don't need to do it. That's why my, my blog was free for that very reason for all these years. There was no advertising. There was nothing in that, you know, for housing wire it's for a broader audience that are more mortgage and real estate. So, so that, that just grew the, the readership millions of people, but the blog being free and everything being open to the public was, was critical because I never wanted to be one of those that did it for the need of subscription or attention or, or marketing. I think that was the key. I'm fortunate enough to be in that position that I can do that. So it was never about that. It was about, economic models and being nerdy and boring and having it work. And in this day and age, you have to make it somewhat exciting. But I understand why they do it because it's a business model. I don't think people understand that Harry Dent, in theory, would be the worst economic forecaster in the last 15 years, right? But he sells books. He tells people Dow's going to go to 6,000 all the time. Does it every year. It's a marketing tactic, right? It's not, it's not, he doesn't really believe that. You know, but it's it, it is what it is. This is the world we live in. Even if we don't recognize it, we we can understand parts of it. Yeah, no doubt. I do have a couple listener questions for you. I don't even know how you're going to argue this after this conversation, but one of them is: I'd like to hear Logan argue a compelling and well reasoned possible bear case for housing. Well, bearish in the sense of two things that are different: prices should the rate of growth of prices should fall. That's what I'm actually rooting for. So I think the housing discussion gets into two forms. People care about price, not the economics of it. So right now, one of the reasons I say it's the unhealthiest home price market, 
I've lost my five-year cumulative growth. So what can happen, let's say if mortgage rates rise to four and a quarter percent, housing will slow. That is in a theory, a bearish case, but it's not a crash case, right? Everyone's revolved their lives around what prices go and not the economics. And this is why we spawned some of the worst housing people in history the last 10 years, because they only care about price, not the economics of it. So this is why, I, I mean, I'm the guy who said we're going to have the weakest housing recovery ever, but prices were kept on rising. People go, well, how is it? I said, that, that's a whole different thing. So rate of growth of pricing should fall. I've written many reasons why this should be the case going back from April and some of the stuff in Housing Wire, but it, it explains why. And that to me is bullish in 2019 when real home prices were negative. Not a lot of people know this, but real home prices, just as the equivalent of rent, were negative. I was like, this is healthy. This is a good thing for the housing market. And people are like, oh no, home prices are about to crash. And this is like, no, it's like these people are on drugs before they talk every time. Not everything is going to be a crash. You can have ebbs and flows, right? You know, and it's okay. And this is why I say these, some of these people are like the most fragile people in the world. Like pending home sales fell 2%. Oh, housing's crashing. Like get off of this, right? Get off of that. So there's many articles that I wrote on when housing data gets bad, it's really evident. But the scale of what you're talking about, what you're looking for are two different things. So remember, you have built-in demographic demand. And this is why I've always talked about home sales under 4 million is rare. If you're a real housing crash person, you need home sales under 4 million. So one of the things I, I thought about is like the housing bubble boys are talking about a 70, 80, 90% price crash. They need home sales to go under 2 million, right? For that to happen. That's never happened post-1996. A lot of my work is post-1996. I don't even care about what happens. Why is that? Anything pre-19. Just because the... The civilian labor force grew and mortgage rates took another level down. You okay. go look at post-1996 data and you could see the deviation in prices because demand picked up because that's mortgage rates, right? So in theory, if mortgage rates got above, I always say 5.875. If mortgage rates got above 5.875, a lot of my affordability decks would get all messed up. Huh. But can okay. it get there, right? No. If you look at that downtrend from 1981 down, I think that, that was like... In 2018, at the economics conference I was in, like all Wall Street economists, 50 of them said rates are going higher. The economists that were with me and said higher said, no, rates are going to go lower next year. Why? Forget about all the reasons you think rates should go higher. 1981, look at that chart. I just literally won a wall. That downtrend is intact. It's because of the that. Fed, man. It's the Fed. I know. It's just like, that's why the whole MBS, I, I, I tell people, I encourage people, do not get into a housing discussion with anybody who uses MBSs first. That is a black hole that's going to lead you to bad places. 2014, that was the thing that people were talking about. Housing's going to crash because the, the Fed is tapering, okay? Bond yields are going down. Mortgage rates are going down. QE is going to end. In, QE3 is going to end. In, okay, mortgage rates still went lower. QE1 ended. Yields went lower. QE2 ended. Yields went lower. Don't get caught into this MBS QE discussion. Think of housing as demographics and mortgage rates, long-term downtrend, 5% mortgage rates didn't move the inventory channel. So if you're thinking about pricing, be careful of going overboard. Now, of course, home prices have gone well above that I'm comfortable with. I'm rooting for a cool down. A rate of growth cool down would be the best thing for housing. In my perfect world, we'd have negative Pricing to flat for three years for the wages to catch up. Is that going to happen? No. 
But rate of growth cooling down is a positive. I know what's going to happen. They're going to see the rate of growth cooling down. They're going to go, oh, housing's crashing because hmm. that's who they are. They can't operate in any other way. Yeah, it is almost, it becomes religious, right? It is. Like in a it way. Is. It's, it's, I've always said this. The housing, the housing crash people are, are very common with historical cult groups. And it's gone for so long that it's impossible for them to go back to their original point. But higher rates do matter. It's the scale that matters. And, and, and the new home sales sector gets impacted more than the existing home sales market. So when I say the unhealthiest housing market, it's really because prices went up so much. Cost for the builders, home prices, you know, that kind of vertical pricing cannot be sustained. And the rate of growth should cool down. Now, if I'm wrong, which I don't think I'll be wrong, but if I am wrong, that means that Years 2022 and 2023, the two sweet spot years ever recorded in U.S. history, there's just too many buyers to prevent the inventory levels to, to go up. And that's, you know, I, that's why I would say people go back 2014. It's always written in a lot of my articles. Look at that inventory channel. You now enter the best demographic patch in history right now. So be careful with some of your bearish takes and know that these people are going to be Living in their homes completely fine, the top of the economic food chain in that sense, but the rate of growth should cool down. That is a bullish thing for me. The bearish aspect for me is that inventory falls in the fall and winter, and we go back to starting from near all-time lows again. That is not a healthy thing. I'll deal with that in 2021, but from now to the end of the year, that's all I'm focusing on, inventory level sticking and going up higher. That'll be the most positive thing for the housing market. Interesting. Do you have thoughts on Zillow, Redfin, and iBuyers and what they're doing to the broader real estate landscape? You know, Zillow is an interesting th question because people ask me, well, why is Zillow's stock price collapsed? People look at Zillow's, it, went, it, lo it actually looks like the 30-year chart and the 10-year yield going back to 1981, but um, they don't make money doing this. Really. That's not great. Yeah, they don't make money doing this, but they, they like the market share. I, I understand what what that sector does. You're going to have to give that about another seven to eight years to see how much it impacts. But for now, Wall Street's letting it slide. We'll see how much more they're going to be invested in in doing that. But in a slowing rate of growth price market, I'm questionable to see how that works. Now, because I mean, Zillow has been buying and they've actually been flipping properties. They're not big enough yet to be a very big force, but they have the potential to grow. That, that whole sector has the potential to grow. So we'll see, but it's probably seven to eight years away before becoming really meaningful in that regards. But for now, Wall Street has let it slide. I know Zillow's price is down, but you know that's off of a very, very strong move recently. In seven to eight years, the demographics is going to be a little bit worse, I would think. Well, yeah. you know, the after years 2024, I'll have a completely different conversation with housing. But the reason I kept it at 2020 to 2024 is because I was concerned about what does the price growth happen here to change anything that happens in 2021 or 2022. So obviously things are going to change at some point. The baby boomers are all going to die off. Gen Z is massive, bigger than Gen X. So you'll have demand there or the need for shelter. It's just this five-year period is a once-in-a-lifetime economic event. 
So we, I show it the respect it deserves, and I don't, I'm not even thinking about past 2024 yet until I see how much price damage is done and everyone can see what's happened in 2020 and 2021 already. Awesome. One more, and then I'll let you get out of here. Any thoughts on blockchain and how it impacts, I don't know if it's title or real estate or, or any of that, or is that not really? There is, a, there is a very good possibility that there is no more title companies five, 10 years from now. If blockchain is ever, if, if it's ever utilized. Again, there's a lot of good ideas and there's a lot of good technology. It's the execution that makes the real difference. So we'll see how that impacts the title industry. I think that's where it would be really interesting, that kind of technology going after an entire sector. Again, somebody has to be willing to put the time and money and the execution part into that. So that is the the interesting aspect of blockchain. Agreed. That was I had a little quick debate with people on the Twitter machine over that. And I said, I, I would worry about the terminal value risk. They pushed back and said, there's so many disparate entities that have the data and very few people that have the incentive to take away or to, to really change the system, but it's something. Yeah, that I've that's the thing. About. Is that who's going to do it, right? You know, there's a, a tons of great ideas, but people people have got to execute on them, and that's a lot of time and money. And humans have a certain lifespan, so. Indeed. Well, you have given me a lot of time, and you also have a certain lifespan. So I'm going to let you get back to it, lifting your kettlebells. And I got to tell you, man, I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate what you give back to the community. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. See you.